Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Kyle Rittenhouse has been on trial for several alleged crimes, including the killing of two individuals, at times looking somewhat amused or even delighted to be on trial, and at other times a great display of big emotion. This trial has wrapped up in three weeks, and we are awaiting the jury's decision. We've also been covering on Law Junkie Show the Elizabeth Holmes trial, which is roughly a three-month trial. So how did they get this trial done so quickly? Well, they're really dramatically different trials. The Rittenhouse case is taking place in a state courtroom in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the county of Kenosha, and in the city of Kenosha. So that is run by Wisconsin Civil Procedure. The Elizabeth Holmes trial is taking place in the federal district court in the Northern District of California. So it'll be governed by federal civil procedure as opposed to California state civil procedure in federal court. Further, the judge in the Elizabeth Holmes trial, uh, Judge Davila, has taken a very different approach to pacing it. It's his courtroom. He sets the schedule. He's consulted with the attorneys for both sides. And uh, they agreed to this type of a schedule that is taking much longer because they have a shorter day and only a couple of days a week is the way that the Elizabeth Holmes trial has been going. Judge Schrader in Wisconsin has taken a very aggressive approach. For example, on the day of closing arguments, I think he went past 6 p.m. Central Time, which is really unheard of in federal court to go that late. But he wanted to push it. He wanted to get the trial done, and he wants to get this case out of his courtroom. And so it's a different approach by different judges governed by different rules in different parts of the country. And I would add that not only are they in different parts of the country, they're dramatically different cases. The Elizabeth Holmes case involves wire fraud, Um, Many different investors, wire fraud allegedly committed against investors, allegedly committed against doctors, allegedly committed against patients with thousands, if not ultimately tens of thousands of pages of documents, dozens and dozens of witnesses testifying. Um, Whereas the Kyle Rittenhouse case, it's one defendant. It's fairly straightforward. It all happened in a very short window of time on that fateful night. And so there's only so much that can be argued. The night that this took place, Kyle was out in an area where there were protests taking place. He and several people that were out that night had AR-15s, multiple guns, and they had them out visible and they had them out legally What are the gun laws in this situation? This is a big topic. And especially if you're listening from outside the United States, you might be wondering, 
how this is even possible. In the United States, we have the Second Amendment to the federal constitution. We have something called the Supremacy Clause, which means that no state law can contravene what uh, a federal law already governs. So the the federal constitution, no state law can interfere with it. In the state of Wisconsin, they have decided to take a very open interpretive approach to the Second Amendment, but I have to give a little bit more history. Throughout the United States history, there have been numerous gun laws restricting gun ownership in various forms, and the Supreme Court of the United States had never ruled on an interpretation of the Second Amendment until a very important case, Because, and I'm going to point this out because a lot of people on social media keep pointing to former Chief Justice Warren Burger. He was former Chief Justice when he made his comments about the Second Amendment. And in the case of what actually holds what's called precedent, there was a very important decision, first of its kind in the United States in 2008, in a case called District of Columbia v. Heller. And that was a Justice Scalia decision written by Justice Scalia that clarified saying that individuals in the United States have a right to bear arms with lots of exceptions. I think it's really important. Section three makes it very clear in the decision that all kinds of regulations can be put on them. But the point is, is there's a fundamental right for the individual, not just a state militia to bear arms. So in the state of Wisconsin, there has been a concerted effort over the last 40 years by pro gun groups to expand gun laws in the United States. And they've come to fruition, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. It's a fact. And states like Wisconsin, they have made it wide open, essentially. Wisconsin, there's no uh, license required to own a long gun, which an AR-15 is considered. There's no permit required for what's called open carry, meaning I can walk around the streets with my AR-15 in full view. So this is the law in Wisconsin where I can just walk around. And with a gun, as long as it's typically 18 years of age, and this Rittenhouse case showed an uh, exception to that, but I can walk around with my rifle anywhere, everywhere. It's it's just, well, I mean, unless the the establishment has a specific rule against it. But that's it. It it is what is called an open carry state. And again, if you're not in the United States and you're hearing that, you might think, what's wrong with this? That's why I had to give that background. As you said, you are required to be at least 18, and Kyle at the time was 17. So why did the judge throw that out? This is an interesting little twist that happened. One of the charges against Kyle Rittenhouse, it was, I believe, the sixth count, possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. There was a little tiny problem with the way the statute was written, how politicians write laws matter. Courts interpret those laws and apply them. In this situation, the defense found a little loophole in the the law, which you would think that the, the, you, the law says, hey, anybody under 18 can't do it. Well, the law in Wisconsin actually says anybody under 18 can't walk around with a so-called long gun, if it's a short barrel long gun. So that law was passed in 1991, and the thought was they were trying to curb gang violence and that allegedly gangs would have used 
sawed off shotguns to commit their crimes. And so that's how they wrote the law. And the defense actually cleverly found this little loophole. And the judge, we can argue here, the judge really put the prosecution in a tough spot because he didn't rule on this until the very end. If he had ruled on that early, the prosecutors could have gone to an appeals court to clarify the statute and to say that yes or no, that that's right. But he didn't rule on it till the very end. And the prosecutors also kind of messed up because they could have preemptively gone to an appeals court for it to be clarified. Further, I want to make one more point on that, which is, and that's what's really important here, is the appeals court is who is required to clarify a statute. And so courts do that. Courts interpret the statute. Now, if Wisconsin really doesn't want 17-year-olds walking around with long guns, they're going to have to hurry up and pass a new law. A medical examiner testified at one point, and some of the information that the medical examiner was given required some inference on the part of the jury. Can the jury request to speak with a witness for clarification if they don't understand something? No. What they can do is ask the judge, and this is what happens during jury deliberations, But during the trial itself, absolutely not. The jury can't ask questions. Um, But during jury deliberations, what the jury can do is request of the judge to either clarify jury instructions. They can ask to review evidence. They can ask to uh, take a look at a transcript, for example. But no, the jury does not get to ask questions. They have no access to any of the witnesses after they have testified. They do not. In this case, for Kyle Rittenhouse, the defense is claiming self-defense. Is there anything, any clause or loophole in self-defense laws that suggests that if it appears that you've gone out looking for trouble, you are not, in fact, defending yourself, regardless of what happens? Yeah, that, that's actually really important, is if you are the one who initiated anything, you're not allowed to use self-defense as an affirmative defense for killing somebody. But self-defense is a very important justification defense. But here's the other thing about self-defense is you have to be under immediate threat. So like if I say to you, I'm going to kill you tomorrow, that is not, you can't then kill that person because that's a future threat. It has to be immediate, imminent harm, imminent belief for great bodily harm, serious bodily injury, or death. That's the only time you can use deadly force in self-defense. So again, you can't be the initiator and you can only use deadly force as if you're, you're about to be killed and you absolutely believe it to be true that this person is about to kill you or they're going to injure you so badly. It's called serious bodily injury. There's a lot of use of photography and video in this case um, as evidence, and it was very helpful. Would either side be able to reinforce the the evidence that they have by by creating a live reenactment to demonstrate? There was a little bit of that. The, the just briefly showing proximity 
But could they have taken that further? And how far can you go with something like that in a courtroom? I don't believe that you can use a live actor to help recreate a scene. But I could be wrong. I, I don't know that for a fact. And I don't know Wisconsin law on this topic. But generally speaking, no, you're not allowed to. And most judges would not allow that because it could be too distracting. It would be inaccurate, potentially. It could be prejudicial because you're using real people to reenact something. So often they will use, what will be used in trial is a graph, a chart, a drawing, or like what we saw in this trial with Kyle Rittenhouse, where both the defense and the prosecution picked up firearms to demonstrate, or you also saw repeatedly in this trial, kind of trying to show how Mr. Rosenbaum's hand was at the time of it being shot. But a live reenactment, I've never heard of such a thing, and I, I don't believe that that would be allowed. Kyle Rittenhouse was claiming to be someone he wasn't, claiming to have qualifications that he did not have. And so it looks like, from in the legal context, intent here, it seems that he did not intend to help, but was very quick to harm. So how, what, what did the defense miss any angle that they could have used to support something that seems so clear? I don't know that they missed any angle. They, they definitely tried to, and I don't remember the witness's name, claim that uh, Kyle was invited to defend the property of that car lot. And so the defense of property, by the way, is, is, is a defense so that, you know, if, if somebody's destroying something and you go to interfere uh, and stop them from destroying something, that is a defense. But really this came down to, it's a defense that you, you can kill someone for damaging no, property. That that's, that's kind of what the point here is, no, you, you can't. The, our country has ruled that you can't kill somebody for property. Now, there are, there's an exception to that. There's a very important exception to that, and that's called the Castle Doctrine, which Wisconsin has and the vast majority of states in the United States have, which is if you enter my home and you're in my home threatening in any way, I can kill you. And it's not even that they're threatening me. It's that I have to feel threatened in any way. I have to feel like there's danger. So they could be stealing a glass out of my kitchen, but I feel like they're dangerous. I can kill them. So that's called the castle doctrine. But, but generally speaking, a car dealership, if somebody's burning a car, you can't kill them for that. So the defense you know, tried a number of angles, but it really hinges on this idea that Mr. Huber, for example, I don't believe Kyle Rittenhouse will be found guilty on the, the first degree counts or second degree counts against Mr. Huber, who died at the end of Carl, Kyle Rittenhouse's AR-15 because he had raised a pistol of some form. I don't recall exactly the firearm that he pointed at Kyle Rittenhouse. So in that case, that's reasonable concern of imminent great bodily hit injury, serious bodily injury or death if somebody's pointing a gun at me. The key is, did Kyle do something to Mr. Huber first? And I don't believe that the evidence was strong in that case. I, I do believe that in the case of Mr. Rosenbaum, who never had a firearm and, and didn't exactly display 
that he was a eighth degree black belt in some martial art where he was going to kill Kyle with his bare hands, Joseph Rosenbaum. I think that's the one that's likely to be found guilty in that case. I believe that that's the one that has the greatest chance. And the defense you know, really tried to claim that Mr. Rosenbaum grabbed the rifle, attempted to grab the rifle. And I think the prosecution did a fairly strong job demonstrating that, you know, when his hip got blown out, how could he be grabbing the rifle? He was still four feet away. These are these are really important facts that the jury will consider. And if, if I'm a betting man, uh, I would bet that that's where Kyle Rittenhouse is found guilty. If self-defense takes into account a person's state of mind, then the only person who can verify that state of mind is the accused, then what keeps this kind of situation from becoming a legal way to commit a crime? And how can you use someone's, when no one can read minds, yeah, so it's called the totality of the circumstances in the reasonable person test. So you have to look at everything that happened, right? This is why the series of events and why that surprise drone footage from the FBI was so important because then you could see how people were moving. And the jury is supposed to take the reasonable person approach. Not not everybody, not the extremes, not some total gun nut, not some, you know, uh, some somebody who's unable to move. It's the reasonable person in those same circumstances. What would they do? And that's how the jury is supposed to look at it and say, you know what? Intent is derived from those circumstances and what a reasonable person would do. So therefore, if Mr. Huber raises a gun and points it at me, do I feel like I'm in imminent danger? Probably. I think a reasonable person probably does. And if that reasonable person happens to have a firearm, which is completely legal in Wisconsin, because of their laws, then you know, shooting back in self-defense is a reasonable interpretation of the intent of Mr. Rittenhouse. In the case, though, of Mr. Rosenbaum, Joseph Rosenbaum, um, he didn't have a firearm. And you've got to look at that. And how did Kyle move? And this was in the closing arguments, the summation from the prosecution uh, on the final day when they pointed out, look, um, Mr. Rosenbaum moved in this way, but he was still far enough away that it's not possible to feel imminent danger under the legal standard. And so we derive that intent then of why did Kyle shoot him, shoot him repeatedly, shoot him four times when he was unarmed. That's how you can derive intent. That is all of these different little facts that are put together to complete the whole puzzle and say, what does a reasonable person do in that situation? Again, um, you're going to get people on different sides of the debate. They go, well, I'm reasonable and I shoot everybody. Um, yeah, no, you're not reasonable uh, in, in the context of the American public. So if you're going to shoot everybody and anybody for anything, you're not reasonable. And if you if you never are going to protect your own life, um, that's also not. So if you're a complete nonviolent human being that would never, ever injure anybody in return, that's not kind of the normal or reasonable person standard either. So it's somewhere in the middle is what we consider the reasonable person standard. Mr. 
The judge reminded uh, Kyle at one point that no one can keep him from testifying, not even his own lawyer. Do you know of any cases where someone has spontaneously demanded to testify maybe against the wishes of their lawyer? I, I don't know of any off the top of my head. There are definitely anecdotes about it, and I'm sure we reviewed at least one case somewhere in law school where that happened. And it's important to note that because of the Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself, that our laws, especially in a criminal trial, that you're not required to take the stand. The prosecutor cannot make you take the stand. You can choose to be silent on it. And at the same time, while you have the right to counsel in a criminal trial under the Sixth Amendment, in this case or, or other cases similar to it, if your lawyer says, absolutely not, do not testify, guess what? That's not your control. It's my life at stake is the way our systems views that. And if I'm the defendant and I want to take the stand because I think I'm so smart and I'm so clever and my lawyer's an idiot and I want to go to jail because really, if you're going to go against your lawyer's advice and take the stand when your lawyer's telling you not to, you're probably going, you're going to lose a very high probability you're going to lose. But in terms of specific examples of that, nothing off the top of my head. You need to account for this. Your Honor, I don't want to jury here. He's commenting on my client's right to remain silent. No, Your Honor, I am making the point that after hearing everything in the case, now he's tailoring his story to what has already been introduced. The problem is, this is a grave constitutional violation for you to talk about the defendant's silence. And that is, and, and, the, and you're right, you're right on the, you're right on the borderline. And you may, you may be over, but uh, it better stop. Understood. This is, I can't think of the case, the initial case on it, but it's, uh, this is not permitted. All right. Um, ask the jury to come in, please. Can you explain this? Is the judge correct? Yeah, actually, uh, because in the Fifth Amendment, again, you have no requirement to incriminate yourself and speak on what you're being accused of. What that audio clip is discussing is before trial, there, the judge, this question came up. And the judge ruled that this was not allowed because what the topic was specifically was why did Kyle Rittenhouse not defend himself after getting arrested? Why didn't verbally defend himself? He's absolutely not required to do so. And you can't use that. That is prejudicial. You can't require somebody to talk in their own defense and you cannot use that against them for not speaking for exercising their constitutional right. This was actually an interesting moment. The judge in this case was right to actually admonish the prosecutor the way he did because you can't do that. And he had already ruled on it away from the jury. And then to bring that up in front of the jury could have, could have, you know, provoked a mistrial. forgetting the court's rulings or attempting to provoke a mistrial in this matter. He knows he can't go into this and he's asking the questions. I asked the court to strongly admonish him 
and the next time it happens, I'll be asking for a mistrial with prejudice. How would a mistrial affect the attorney who is considered to be the one causing it? Well, the, in that case, judges can impose sanctions if they believe that the attorney did something against the court's order, against the court's wishes, and something that, that was so egregious. The judge can impose sanctions as well. And in a really egregious case, could refer him to the state bar or a, ju a judicial review of the attorney's license to practice. But that's basically what would happen to somebody if a judge was going to do something against a, uh, an attorney who caused a mistrial. You guys asked for my footage, so I gave it to you. Through your attorney? Yes. That's an attorney that you uh, have out of Madison? What's the relevance of this? Well, Your Honor, we've had a lot of questions about other What's people. What's the relevance of this? I would like to know why he felt the need to retain an attorney to provide video in this case. I think it goes to bias. I think it goes to credibility. It's been asked uh, other witnesses. Let's take the lunch break. Um, please don't talk about the case uh, during the break. It seems like attorneys always recommend that a person get an attorney, no matter what. Now the prosecution is saying the opposite of what you would expect to hear in this situation. Yeah, I thought that was really bizarre, actually. That is not... I, I, I didn't know what the prosecutor was thinking there. And I, I think uh, most attorneys watching or listening would have a similar reaction where, where the judge did too of why would you go there? What, what, what do you mean? He has a right to have an attorney. Everybody has a right to have an attorney. As a matter of fact, to, to your point, we almost always recommend you get an attorney. If there's an investigation that's going on. If there's, there's, there were killings that happened with really, really serious charges. And if, if I was in that witness's shoes, I would have gotten an attorney as well because I'd be concerned that I could be called an accessory to the crime or something else. So absolutely, I'm getting an attorney. I have no idea what the prosecutor was thinking there. I really don't. The judge was having a hard time understanding some pretty basic technology, and he admitted and even referred to himself as a dinosaur. Well, moving forward, should judges have to take some kind of workshop or something if they don't understand basic technology? Does Did that not affect his ability to do his job? It was a surprising moment when he didn't understand a basic pinch and zoom function on a smartphone that has existed for many years that everybody basically uses except for outliers or in his cases, he called himself a dinosaur. Yeah, I, I think it, that it is possible that you know, states like Wisconsin or states like California, but there are Supreme Courts in those states that will create new rules and requirements for judges to get training they don't do that very often. Judges have a tendency not to want to be told they need training on something. So it is, I'm going to say, unlikely that you're going to see anybody ordered to technology training. The judge's phone also rang a couple of times. And uh, is there a policy in most courtrooms to silence your phone? Yes. As a matter of fact, people get kicked out of courtrooms 
for a ring or even a single note of a text message coming in, judges will have people removed. This is a, this is a big deal for most judges that you're, and I, I would have to say basically all judges. I, I've not heard of a judge who wouldn't get totally ticked off at somebody's phone in their courtroom ringing repeatedly at that. I can't even imagine any judge that I've been in front of being just totally calm and cool. And let me rephrase here in California. I'm sure I've been in front of a judge who would be calm and cool about it, but boy, that is the exception, not the rule. And so for this judge's phone to continuously go off and ring was really shocking, but guess what? It's the judge's courtroom. And if his phone rings, that's on him. The ringtone happened to be a, a ringtone that was reported to be a theme song played often at Trump rallies. So given the current climate, could this be considered something that would point to possible bias on his part? This is always a fun topic because lawyers and judges have their same First Amendment right that you do. And, and, and what that is, is rights to expression, free speech. This is a common problem that we hear about where a lawyer will get in trouble for something, or in this case, potentially a judge, absolutely has the First Amendment right to have whatever ringtone he wants on his phone. Now, if there was some ringtone on his phone that said, I'm Kyle Rittenhouse's great uncle and I never divulged that, totally different story, mistrial, new judge. Um, But in this case, simply having a ringtone that may have been a song that was played at a political rally. Doesn't matter which side that you're talking about. He has the right to do that. And and that is not something that's going to get him in trouble. Speaking of bias, what about Kyle playing the lottery uh, and pulling out these strips of paper with names on it? Why not a court clerk? So what, what you're talking about is there were 18 jurors that were listening to the whole trial. There are 12 who deliberate and decide. And what they did in this courtroom is they did a drawing. This, this happens in different jurisdictions. Um, not as much my experience. Normally it's, you know, 12 jurors seated, four alternates identified. And then if somebody falls out, an alternate is assigned to replace them. In this case, it was a lottery to select who the 12 were to decide Kyle Rittenhouse's fate. And unlike anything I've seen or even heard of, they allowed the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse, to select who the 12 jurors were. Now, that is just honestly shocking. Um, But look, there's been so much that has happened in this trial that I have considered shocking to one degree or another that that's just another one on the list. Now, It was not in front of the jury, so it's not bias. It's not going to cause the jury to think, oh my gosh, he picked my name. Now I can't convict him. That would be the fear as if he had done it in front of the jury. Now we would have a really serious conversation to have. He did do it outside the jury, but that, that was really, really surprising. And I've never heard of such a thing. When the judge was speaking to Kyle about the charges brought against him. He said, they cannot convict you of more than one crime on each count. What does that mean? This was a very confusing situation. And as a matter of fact, the the lawyers and, and the judge argued about it for 
quite a, an extended period of time of what happens if he's determined to have not committed self-defense or he was privileged in his self-defense on the first degree count, then it won't apply on the second degree count. I'm not 100% sure what the judge meant in that moment. And it's a little confusing to me as well because you can convict people for first degree murder and second degree murder and, you know, manslaughter. You can actually, in other jurisdictions, find people guilty of many different counts for the same exact crime. But what happens is that sentencing, it's the most severe one that gets sentenced for the defendant at that, in that case. Or in that case, if it's sentencing, then the, the convicted. But, but in this case, I, I'm, I'll be blunt. I don't know exactly what the judge was talking about in that moment. Thank you for listening to Law Junkies Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on YouTube. Follow us on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Meta. And visit us at, and visit us at lawjunkieshow.com. You can send us a message there on the contact form or at info at lawjunkieshow.com. Disclaimer, Law Junkies Show, including its guests and hosts, are not giving out legal advice, but discussing general legal issues. Law Junkie Show does not guarantee that the legal issues discussed are fully accurate, and it's not specific to whatever legal issues you may be experiencing. None of this advice is to be acted upon in your situation. Please seek legal advice from a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction for your individual legal matter.